once you've grabbed a seat, uh, please turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Uh, If you've just come in today for the first time, we're back into a series that we are working our way through in Matthew's Gospel. We did the first half at the end of last year through to Easter, and this year we're doing the second half from last week through to Easter uh, again. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13, 33, sorry, 13 to 28. Matthew 16, verse 13 to 28, and I'm reading from the ESV. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? Or sorry, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon, by Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Verse 21, from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then he told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man or a woman if he gains, if they gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? What shall a person give in return for their soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of the Father and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And this is God's word. Well, uh, just on Friday, uh, Michelle and I went for our biannual or sometimes triannual uh, eye appointment. Um, Why? Well, because obviously seeing clearly is really, really important. I never really enjoy them going to the eye appointment, mainly because of the strength of my script. It happens every single time I go. They pull out my file from the last time that we were there they look at the script and go, oh my goodness. They look at me and they're like, wow, 
And I, yeah, I know, you said that last time. Yeah, well, maybe you'll get cataracts and then you can have the surgery and you'll be fine. It's kind of not that encouraging, really, when you go and hear that. So I kind of enter the ophthalmologist's room or optometrist's room in fear and dread. Please report. Only slight change this time, so that was good. Um, but one thing you never hear from them uh, as you go, unless, I mean, maybe you have, but I doubt it very much, is that your sight is improving, that it's getting better. It's either staying the same or it's deteriorating. In fact, apparently at 40 and then at 50 and then at 60, it deteriorates around the age bracket each time. Encouraging, isn't it? Something to look forward to. I'm not sure after that you get cataracts and you know, then you die, so then it doesn't matter. You can't see anyway, so you don't need to see. Um, but you go biannually, whatever it is, because seeing clearly is really, really important. And that's what we're going to see today in our passage. We're kind of at this, this kind of crunch point in the Gospel of Matthew, this, this major turning point, if you like, where seeing clearly is really, really important. And, and the interesting thing is what we have is sight that's not deteriorating. We actually have an example of sight that's improving in someone and in those with him. It's spiritual sight. It's given by God to the disciples in terms of who Jesus is. They're getting to see him clearer and clearer and clearer as they uh, spend more and more time with him and as he reveals more uh, realities about him. And it's a real turning point for them as they see him more clearly. It changes everything for them. And I want to venture to say, as if you and I see Jesus more clearly, it becomes a turning point for us too changes things dramatically for us. See, the reality is that we all need this spiritual improving sight that God gives when it comes to Jesus if we are to make sense of him at all. And the great thing is this, God gives that sight to those who seek it by his word and by his spirit. So if Jesus is not making sense to you, Can I encourage you to go with confidence to God and ask him to make things clearer for you? You can't do it. You can't manufacture that. But God is in the business of giving this sight to people. It can happen for us today. I'm hoping that it will. We're praying that it will. We're going to pray in a second that it will as we open his word prayerfully and dependently together. So let's pray. All of us need this. Let's pray. Ask God for it and pray for one another as we hear his word. Father, we come to you this morning and we just confess that, yeah, we, we need your help. There are lots of things that we can see clearly, but spiritually we struggle. We miss, as we heard already, important things, the most important things, and somehow get fixated on things that really don't often matter that much. So please, Lord, as we open your word together, would you orientate our hearts and our minds? Give us a fresh vision of Jesus as we look at your word together. For your glory in our lives, which is the same as for our good. Amen. So there's three things I'm hoping that you and I will see this morning by God's grace as we work our way through this passage, three things that will bless us, that will encourage us, and actually as they land in our lives will change us. And the first is this, Jesus 
identified. Jesus identified. See that in verse 13 through to verse 20. As I said, it's a turning point for the disciples and it's pivotal for them. It's a pivotal point in the story. Jesus has already been making himself known in everything he does, in everything he says. He is making himself known in all of that. And those who knew their Old Testament scriptures ought to have been waking up and realising that some of the things that Jesus is doing had been spoken about. They ought to have been onto it at this point. And so we get to hear this part of Matthew, and it's kind of like Jesus gauges how, to, to what degree people are getting it, and particularly to what degree his disciples are seeing it. Who do you say that the Son of Man is, he asks, in verse 13. Or who do people say? Verse 13 and verse 14, they respond. Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, um, which kind of gives you a bit of a window into the fact that there was all these uh, expectations, if you like, these prophetic expectations kind of swirling around in Jesus' day. People had all sorts of ideas of what was going to happen Funny, it doesn't sound too much different to these days, right? Lots of people have got lots of ideas about what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. Well, it was the same at his first coming. People had lots of ideas and maybe this prophet's going to emerge and maybe this is going to happen and so on. And so, you know, as people watch Jesus, they're like, oh, maybe it's this, maybe it's that. Some say this, some say that. Then Jesus nails it, doesn't he? He kind of you know, zooms in on them and says, but who do you say that I am? He moves from the crowds to his disciples and asks the very personal question, which all of us have got to answer, who do you say that I am? Peter steps up, as he often does, and on this occasion nails it by God's grace. In verse 16, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, We just gloss over that, but I want to suggest to you that for Peter to say that, that is a huge thing. That is a big deal that has just come off uh, his lips. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is identifying at this point that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the one whom they have been waiting for for centuries that Jesus is the long-awaited, promised and anointed king who will come and save his people. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's what Peter's saying, the long-awaited one who will bring the salvation and the blessing of God's kingdom, God's rule and reign, his saving rule to his world, the Christ The Messiah, it's a big deal for Peter to say that. He's concluded, friends, and don't miss this, that Jesus is the Christ and standing right in front of him, right in front of him. He has come to this, and he's come to this, notice, as his sight has improved by God's revelation. Notice what Jesus says to him as Uh, In response, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father 
who is in heaven. Peter's sight has improved to the point where he's recognising the Messiah and God has miraculously given him that sight. It's not because he you know, kind of came up with it by his own cleverness. It wouldn't have bypassed his intellect or his brain and the things he knows about the scriptures. But nevertheless, supernatural grace has given him the ability to recognise the Messiah standing in front of him. Now, I want to say again, as I've already emphasised, that this is true of all of us. We need this revelation. We need this help of the Spirit to see Jesus clearly. The Bible's clear. We are spiritually blind by nature. We are spiritually blind by nature. We need the revelation of God in Jesus by his Holy Spirit if we are going to see I can't just go to my ophthalmologist to get this sorted. God needs to do this. And some of us really need to hear this because we can be somewhat presumptuous about understanding Jesus. Ah, we can work it out. I'll just read my Bible more. I'll work it out. Will you? Yes, you need to read the Scriptures more, but you need to do it in dependence on God and His Spirit to help you understand them. We can be presumptuous. The reality is we don't immediately see the reality of Jesus and the implications of that reality. I remember years ago, I was 19 years of age, and I started to read the Bible. It was a very, very old version of the Bible. It was a new, uh, actually, it was a John Nelson Darby version, which is pre-King James. And it was making little or no sense to me. But I kept reading it. And later I realised that the Spirit of God was gradually opening my blind eyes. But it wasn't just because I was reading it. It was left to myself. I'd still be in the dark. But God was graciously using his word by his Spirit to open my eyes. Five years later I became a Christian. We need this help. There's another reason why we need this help of the Holy Spirit, and it's this, because we are actually idolatrous by nature. We're not only blind by nature, we're idolatrous, which means we are likely to come up with a Jesus of our own making who fits in with us. Let's call him the convenient Jesus. Right? A Jesus that doesn't call us to anything. A Jesus with no gravitas or glory. A Jesus that we can just kind of have a little bit of him on the side of the life that we're already wanting to live. So we need to see Jesus clearly so we might respond to him appropriately. But Peter rightly confesses Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus is identified And then notice that Jesus begins to show Peter what kind of Messiah he's going to be. Verse 18, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus says very clearly here that as the Messiah, he has come primarily to build his church. 
is church. Now the word church here is the word ecclesia, which simply means an assembly, or probably more helpful, gathering. Gathering. And it's not the first time that God has gathered people to himself, but now he's doing it in a new way through his Christ. Notice uh, there's there's a controversial bit here in this passage where uh, Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Um, Lots of uh, kind of debate or controversy over what that means, and here's mainly the three kind of options that it could mean or that people think it means. Our Roman Catholic friends would say that Jesus is saying he's going to build his church on Peter himself and that as a result Peter is kind of like the first uh, pope or leader of the church globally and ever since then there's been a succession of popes down through history uh, who are infallible and therefore whose teachings are infallible and therefore whose teachings sit equal with the word of God. In fact, therefore whose teachings more often than not take over from the word of God. Now there's really no support for this idea in the Bible. In fact, the idea itself came from the popes. Um, Infallibility of the popes was about 6th century AD. So there's quite a gap between here and then when this idea was come up with. Others in opposition to that would say that Jesus is referring to Peter's confession. You are the Christ. And it's on that that uh, Jesus is going to build his church as, those, as others who confess Jesus as uh, Peter has. They will become part of the church and this is what Jesus means to build his church and this is the rock on which he's building it. There's only one problem. Jesus says, speaks of Peter and not so much his confession. So here's a better way to understand it. Peter, as the first of the apostles who proclaim Jesus, has a primacy, if you like, at the beginning. He proclaims Jesus, Christ crucified and risen, and as he does that, Jesus builds his church, which is precisely what we see happen in the book of Acts, isn't it? As the good news goes out, who's the first sermon recorded by? Peter. In Acts chapter 2. But not just Peter. The other apostles and many others besides. Peter is the rock in terms, in the sense that he's primary in this, but there are many others then at the time and many others since, right down to you and me today. Jesus is still building his church today on this. As the apostolic gospel, if you like, the good news that the apostles proclaimed, is proclaimed by us, shared with others, spoken, and people uh, come and repent and believe, Jesus builds his church. He hasn't finished yet. This project, if you like, is still under construction. It'll finish when he comes back. I will build my gathering, Jesus says. And the gates of hell will not overcome it, will not prevail against it, though they may come thick and fast against his church. 
they will not prevail. Isn't that encouraging? Sometimes you feel like you're being uh, full-on attacked or oppressed, don't you, as a follower of Jesus? And you wonder sometimes, I don't know how much more I can take. I don't know if I can keep going. Jesus says, I will build you, I will build my church, and this will not overcome you. It might be tough, it might be hard, but you will not be overcome by it. Friends, do you notice the priority of the church here for Jesus? I reckon this is, this is quite challenging and I don't, don't, don't think we often kind of focus on this in, in this particular passage. But it's clear, isn't it? The building of God's church is the focus of Jesus' ministry. Isn't it? It's fairly, it's fairly straightforward, isn't it? The building of his church is the focus of his life and ministry. Gathering people into an eternal community rescued by him is his mission. And building them together and gathering them together. And notice also for Jesus, the church is the place in which and through which his kingdom unfolds. You see that in verse um, 19. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven as his church and especially its leaders apply the principles of his word by his spirit. As that happens, the kingdom of heaven is revealed and unfolded and experienced by his church among his people. And again, it's clear this is what Jesus is focused on. He is all about building his church and nothing, friends, nothing is going to stop him. Nothing. The question we need to ask at this point is twofold. Have we become part of his church? Have we been gathered by him through the good news of his death and resurrection on our behalf? And have we been rescued by him? Have we been gathered to him and rescued by him? Have we seen, no matter what our script is physically, have we seen that Jesus is the Christ, the long-awaited promised Redeemer, and have we come to him for rescue? That's the first question. If we have, the second question is this. If the church is Jesus' priority and we are his followers, are we on board with him? Are we on board with him? Is his priority clearly seen here, seen and reflected in ours? Because surely, if the church is Jesus' primary mission, then as the church, it ought to have a very high place in our lives. Surely. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. Come up to me after the service and you know, debate if you want to, but I think it's pretty clear. Do we invest in it? with our time, with our talents, and yes, with our treasure. 
Are we also about building up his church with the gifts and the abilities and the resources that he has given us? Uh, To flip it another way, isn't it astonishing that we get to join him in doing that? Can you see the immense privilege of this? The long-awaited, promised-for centuries Messiah is, has come and is, is rescuing and gathering people to himself. And those, as those gathered, we get to be involved in gathering others, in growing together with others, in seeing his church flourish and be fruitful, all for his glory and for our good. What an immense privilege that's in front of us. Michelle and I are looking into building a home at the moment. We've been looking into it for quite a while. And um, one of the ads that I came across, you've probably seen it on telly, it's Dale Alcock sitting in, I think, in one of his homes or in his lounge, kind of just having a chat with you uh, across the camera. And uh, I noticed he said this the other day when I was watching that ad. The decision you make as to which builder you choose has never been more important than it is today. The decision you make as to which builder you choose has never been more important than it is today. Thanks for that, Dale. I think Matthew would agree with you. Maybe not reaching the same conclusion, (laughs) but isn't, isn't that what Matthew's saying here? And who is the builder that he holds out to us to choose to build with? Jesus, the Christ. Hell itself can't stop him. He will build his church and one day we'll see its completion. And we get a glimpse of it, don't we, in Revelation. You know this passage perhaps. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. There it is. There's the completed project, the building completed. The final handover, if you like. We're not there yet. Which builder are you choosing to build with? Or to put it another way, which building are you focused on? Because there's lots of buildings you can be focused on. Lots of things you can build. But there's only one of them. And he invites you to join him in building his church. And the reason you can, as I've already mentioned, and the reason you can be confident about it, is firstly who he is, but also what he's done. Secondly, what we see in this passage is Jesus crucified. Do you see that there? Verse 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan, you are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Jesus gets clearer now, doesn't he, as to what kind of Messiah he's going to be, as to what his deliverance and his salvation will look like, as to how he will accomplish, accomplish it, accomplish it as to how he will build his church and as you know poor old peter at this point he'd done so well up up until now don't judge him because you know i'm not sure i would have got this far he comes unstuck here he'd identified that jesus is the christ but what jesus says now completely throws him he doesn't know what to do with this that the christ would suffer and die you know, we just go, oh, yeah, yeah, of course, Jesus dies, right? That's what he does. Kind of just brush over it again. But again, this is huge for Peter. For Peter, this would mean a Christ that had been defeated. This would mean a Christ that had failed. If you want a, a, you know, a king to come in and rescue you, you don't want him to die. You want him to, to, to live and to triumph. And yeah, maybe put some other people to death. But not him. If he's leading the charge... Peter's, Peter can't get his head around this. So notice he tries to put Jesus straight. Not, not always a good idea, you know, particularly from our vantage point when we know that Jesus is not only the son of the living God, he is God the son, second member of the Trinity. Not a great idea to try and correct him, put him straight. What, is, what does he say to him? He took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. <laughs> In Peter's mind, Jesus dying, being killed, is miles away. Far be it from you. In fact, in Peter's mind, it's impossible. This shall never happen to you, he says. He can't get his head around it. Christ and him crucified. And we ought not to just go... Oh yeah, we are to wrestle with it too. Because this is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he's going to what? Suffer many things, be killed, and rise. Nothing in all of history comes close to this event. Jesus now puts Peter right, rebukes him. Get behind me, Satan, he says. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. A bit harsh, don't you reckon? If you're honest, as you've read that at times, you've probably gone, oh, a bit harsh, Jesus. You know, he, he kind of nailed who you were just a few verses before, and you were you know, telling him you're going to build his church on... Now get behind me, Satan. What's what's Jesus saying? Well, Jesus is saying your thinking is satanically inspired because it involves a Christ without a cross. It's not the first time that has come up in Matthew's Gospel. Do you remember when it came up before? It came up when Jesus was tempted by Satan himself. Remember this in Matthew 4, 8 to 10? 
This is the third of the three temptations. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said, all these I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Notice what the temptation is about again. It's saying to Jesus, you can have everything without the cross. And Jesus says, get behind, be gone, Satan. And so when Peter comes up to him and says, this shall never happen to you, Jesus hears the echoes of the enemy of God's kingdom and rebukes Peter accordingly. Isn't it interesting how quick the gates of hell were coming against Jesus building his church? So quick. And it's never stopped. But it will not prevail against it. Not only that, but Peter's thinking, notice, is merely human about the Messiah. You know, kind of thinking without uh, divine inspiration, without scriptural inspiration, just kind of Peter constructing his own Jesus that he thinks uh, is right. You know, this is what Jesus should be like. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to do this. And that doesn't fit. So Peter says, your mind, you are not thinking, setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So again, you know, notice we need God's word to shape our thinking about Jesus. Not come up with our own ideas, our own kind of pictures of Jesus according to us. And so verse 21 Jesus makes it clear, doesn't he? From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the things of God. As opposed to Peter's thinking. Notice again that little word must in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must. The idea means that it is necessary, that it is God's plan. This is how God planned it. And though at first glance it might not make much sense that the Christ should suffer, and though at first glance it might look weak and powerless, and I'm sure it looked shameful, when Jesus hung on that cross on our behalf. This is how the Christ does his saving work. This is how Jesus the Messiah rescues us. This is how he rescues you and me if we will come to him. This is how he triumphs over sin and death and hell for us. This is the length to which he will go to do that for us. This is how he builds his church. This is the foundation on which his church is built that the gates of hell cannot and will not prevail against. Second thing we see is Jesus crucified. Now, continuing on with our building theme. Lots of people are balking at building new homes at the moment and some would say rightly so because they're worried about a whole bunch of things. They're worried about 
the rising cost of materials, the rising cost of labour, the supply chain shortages, and whether they'll have the resources to finish the job, or whether their builder will default or go broke or fall over, and they'll be left with nothing but maybe a few bricks and a slab. People are worried about it. What's it going to cost? What did it cost to build the church? Not this thing we're sitting in, which is great, by the way, to, on a day like today. It'd be terrible out in the sun this morning, wouldn't it? It wouldn't be great sitting here for an hour and a half. But what did it cost to build you as the church? To build and grow an eternal community of redeemed people. What did it cost? What did it cost to see people brought out of darkness into light? What did it cost for Jesus to gather us to himself? What did it cost that we might know him and love him and be known and loved by him? Nothing less than his suffering and his crucifixion and his resurrection. Nothing less than Christ and him crucified. Tells you something about God, doesn't it? Tells you something about your heavenly Father if you've come to know him. How gracious is he? Pouring out his undeserved favour on us through Jesus. How gracious is he? How merciful is he? Mercy is about giving help to the helpless or strength to the weak or freedom to those who are enslaved. How merciful is he? How surprising is he? You know, this is not what Peter expected, right? And we need to get to a place where this is, you know, we're so clear on it that we're like, that's not what I expected either. But praise his name, that's what he's done. What does it tell us about us? Well, it tells us that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It tells us that our sin is not a small problem. But it's not too big a problem for Jesus to deal with at great cost to himself. Well, the last thing I want us to see this morning as we finish is this, Jesus magnified, which is where we, uh, where we find what we find in verse 24 and following. Jesus then tells his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would lose his life, sorry, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man or a woman if he or she gains the whole world and forfeits their soul? Or what shall a person give in return for their soul? Notice, friends, that to magnify Jesus is to respond to him in such a way that shows his worth. That shows by the focus and direction of our lives that Jesus is truly great. 
that nothing and no one, as far as we are concerned, compares with him. That's what it means to magnify him, that he is the Christ, and that in his great love he was crucified for us. And so we want to follow him. We want to follow him. We want to honour him. We want to exalt him. We want to bring him glory because of who he is and because of what he's done for us. We want to bring him glory with our lives. So how does Jesus speak of this here? He says, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves. Take up their cross and follow me. To deny yourselves means to no longer be driven by your own desires and passions. It means to say no to that way of living and yes to King Jesus each and every day. Not perfectly, but that's the trajectory. It means to no longer be constantly trying to find life in what this world has to offer, but to find it once and for all in relationship with him. The one who alone gives true and eternal life. In verse 25 and 26, Jesus says, you must take up your cross if you're going to come after him, if you're going to follow him. Now, in Jesus' day, there wasn't much doubt as to what that meant. If you happen to pick up a cross, it means you are carrying it to a place where you would be nailed to it and they would stick it upright in the ground. It means you're going to die. And Jesus says, if you would follow me, if you would come after me, you need to die to your old way of life. And come to a new life in and through the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you try and hold on to this life, if you try and have a feet in both camps, what does Jesus say? You're going to lose it. You're going to lose it. And we try, don't we? You know, I, I just want to, I just, again, just, you know, I want to do this and then I'll just have a little bit of Jesus on the side. Kind of like salt and pepper with my meal. Jesus Jesus doesn't present a Christianity like that as an option because it's not there. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you? When you see clearly who he is and what he's done and what he invites you to, This is what it means to magnify Jesus. Magnification is not, like, not, 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 a, not with a microscope making something small big, but with a telescope seeing something that's already big. Showing something great that is already great. That's what the Christian life is meant to do. Meant to shine a light on Jesus. Showing his worth both in our own hearts but also 
to anyone around us. I want to ask you this morning, praying and hoping that we've all seen Jesus a bit clearer today, do you want to magnify him with your life? In response to his great love for you, you want to honour him, exalt him, enjoy him, delight in him, trust him, rest in him. It just goes on and on, right? Because of how great he is, you, you, you name it. Are you magnifying Jesus by your response to him? Are you convinced that life is found in him? Because that penny needs to drop, right, at some point. Otherwise, you're going to keep looking for it everywhere else. It doesn't mean we don't enjoy the good things that God has given us. But they don't become ultimate. Are you convinced that life is found in him? And not in all this world has to offer. That at the end of the rainbow, there's nothing there. If you aren't convinced of that, you probably won't follow him or you'll at least struggle to because you'll have kind of a divided loyalty going on, pulling in different directions. Maybe that's the next step for you today. Maybe that's what you can ask God for, that he'll help you see that true life is found in Jesus. And some of us might be trying to create a Jesus that fits in with us. With how we want to live. Not an option. We need to engage with the Jesus that's revealed to us. Not one that's made up by us. The one that's revealed to us is far better. He's powerful. He can save. He's worthy. Friends, notice that following Jesus is all in. It's all in. It's not half in, half out. It's all in. Turning from our way of life, dying, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, turning and trusting. Repentance and faith. I wonder sometimes if some of us are stuck in that, plot, in that kind of transition because we've never really turned. We've never really repented. And we're trying to do the faith bit. We're trying to have the Christian bit. We're trying to have the salvation bit. But we've still got a tight hold on all of this. Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, and that's anyone, Let him deny himself, let her deny herself, take up their cross gladly, happily, and follow me. How's your sight today? You know, if it's bad, there's hope. If this sight's bad, mm, cataracts, then you die. All right? This side, if it's bad, if 
there's hope. You can come to God and ask him, Lord, open my eyes to see wonderful things in your word. Help me see. By your spirit, for your glory, and for my eternal good. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you haven't left us in the dark. As we saw this morning, you've come for us in the person of your Son, the Lord Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And you've come at astonishing, stunning cost to yourself in order that we might know you and follow you and love you and magnify you and enjoy you. Even though we turned our backs on you, Father, you are so good and so kind. Lord Jesus, that you would do this. Not reluctantly, but willingly, you say, I have come to lay down my life. For the sheep, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down. This was your choice, your will, your purpose, your plan. Please, Lord, open our eyes, no matter how, how well we're currently seeing, open them even more to see Jesus, that we might follow him, that we might be changed by him and renewed by him. Lord, we ask this in his name.